This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book under the covering title of The Sun and number three of the series. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together. Those of you who are listening to this tape, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a moment or two and read together with us two psalms. Psalm 2 and Psalm 72. We have looked at the testimony of Scripture concerning the Son. We have seen that it begins with a very title he possesses. He is the beginning of the creation of God. And he is the Amen. And so we have Christ beginning and Christ bringing the purpose of the ages through to a most glorious consolation. Then cometh the end, when the Son shall deliver up the kingdom to the Father, that God may be all in all. It is the Son that dominates the Scriptures. We have various titles of God, but every now and again, in type, in prophecy, in parable, in some form or another, we have the Son in Old Testament, and then the New Testament opens with his birth and the fulfilment of prophecy and his name is Manuel and he carries it on. We get it in our own epistle to the Ephesians that the very unity of the faith is the knowledge or the acknowledgement of the Son of God and goes right the way on to the epistle to the Hebrews and contrasts the fact that in early days God spoke to the fathers by the prophets but in those last days he had spoken unto them in son, in his son. And so we are prepared, aren't we? Not only by the fact of the gospel, that God so loved the world, or, as you know it might be translated, for God, God loved the world like this. Like this. Herein is love, as John puts the same words in his epistle. God loved the world like this, that he gave his only begotten son. And there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, said Paul, hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For God, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Everywhere you go, at the end of Romans 8, what are we going to say to these things? He that spared not his own Son you see, it fills our mouths and hearts with glorious argument. The Son of God. A day will come when we shall understand the mystery of godliness. How it was possible to be, to write that God was manifest in the flesh. If you ask me how, I'm rather content to realise that it says, Confessedly great is the mystery of godliness. And so far as God has told me, I can believe. Uh, where he says you wait, I think it's wiser for us all to wait. But there's no doubt, is there? In Old Testament or New, in Law or in Gospel, that it's the Son of God that we have to keep well in front of our minds. Sometimes you hear uh, exhortations to get right with God. But the Gospel of God, Romans, is concerning his Son, no man cometh out of the Father, he said, but by me. 
to urge men to get right with God is to urge them to attempt the way of Cain. I think we'd better go back then to the beginning and see this evening how by lifting out from the scriptures the story that is written round seven of these typical sons, we shall gather a bit here and a bit there as God gives us light uh, as to what this one son who fulfills all these types and eclipses them means to the purpose of God and us, uh, those of us who believe. Now it says in Genesis 4, And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man, our version says, from the Lord. There's a, a reason to put a little dash there rather in English and say, I've gotten a man. Jehovah. What did Eve mean? She said, here's the promised seed. God said I should have a seed. And he has given me this one. Because she was mistaken. But here's the beginnings. And she again bare his brother Abel. And the rabbinical commentaries on this are sharp to notice that it doesn't say, and Adam knew his wife a second time. They maintain that this indicates they were twins. And it leaves the door open for some interference on the part of the wicked one, about which, blessed be God, the less we know the better. But you know there was something of the same character repeated when the sons of God saw the daughters of men and there were monsters born in the earth. And the scripture says in the New Testament, Cain was of that wicked one. Well, I leave it to speak for itself. So here we have Abel now. She again bare his son Abel, his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. You notice all what we would like to know. How these boys grew up, how they were trained, how they managed to live, what they did about food. We know not a word. You see, this Bible is not an encyclopedia about everything. It's a book of redemption. It spends more time describing a tabernacle that wasn't very much bigger, you may say, than this chapel, than it does to describe the creation of heaven and earth during the six days when the earth was ready for man. And there are some people who say Moses couldn't have been inspired by God because he doesn't tell you all about nuclear fission and atomic, I don't know what. But you see, if Moses had started to write a story of creation in all its wonders, he'd still be at it if he was alive. And we should never have known the way of salvation. It had been too much in the way. God knew why. God knew what he was doing when he omitted so much. So what he does put in is a challenge to us to say, now evidently, that bit that's put in is something we ought to ponder, not pass by quickly. So shall we say, right, we're in that mood. We do believe that this is more important than all the information we might get about the primitive earth and what it was like and so on. And in process of time, there's a suggestion in the word process of time that it was a, a, a repeated thing that was coming round in its turn. We're not told God told Adam and Eve to keep a Sabbath day holy or anything. Uh, that's left. But it may be 
that there were times when this exiled little family outside the Garden of Eden went back to the gate where the cherubim were and the flaming sword keeping the way of the tree of life and there was their place of worship. You know, they wouldn't go very far, first of all, uh, in the nature of things. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof. It's most evident, isn't it, that something had been told to these men, because it's not obvious, not a thing that anyone would immediately know by nature without being told that you've got to bring the fat thereof. That's anticipating the Levitical law. So much left out, there's enough to make us see that they were not left without something to guide them. You cannot believe, can you, that Adam and Eve would never have told their sons that they made a mistake in the Garden of Eden. They covered themselves with the leaves of a tree and God stripped those off and he gave them coats of skin that meant a sacrifice was offered. Now Cain knew that as well as Abel. They both knew it. Otherwise, I don't see how they could be held responsible. Then also, you want to put the word also, I think, didn't know I was going to say it twice over, uh, a little bit different place to know exactly what the Lord said in Genesis 4, verse 4. And Abel, he brought also. You see, as it stands, Cain did what something, Abel did something. But that isn't what it says. Abel did exactly the same as Cain. He brought in offering. What it was, we don't know. But what he did do is the thing that is stressed. He brought also the one offering that made any other offering and worship acceptable. And the way of Cain is to say, something in my hand I bring. And the way of Abel is to sing the hymn as it was first written, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Now if you will turn for a moment to Hebrews chapter 11, you'll see the way in which the Apostle has spoken of this. Abel figures there in in the list of those who are examples of those who had faith and acted in harmony with it. It says in verse 4, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Now once again, when the Apostle Paul wanted to say more excellent, he used entirely different language. You'll find it in 1 Corinthians 12, a more excellent way. You've got it there. And if you look up your grammar book or your lexicon, or if you look at the various passages where the word occurs, you'll discover that it's true what is said, that this particular expression means numerical, more numerically. Uh, well, it said that um, different places, I think, in the in the um, New Testament, when there was more that did this or more that did that, it's numerical. Abel brought it's a it's an uncouth expression in English. He brought more of a sacrifice than Cain. More of a sacrifice. Well, you can't speak like that, so they said more excellent. Well, it was. But it disguises the fact that he brought something as a worshipper. 
Kaibo, something as a worshipper, but he brought something more. And it was not something more that mattered. Come back to Genesis 4. Cain was wroth when his sacrifice was was rejected. And so it says in verse 7, If thou doest well, if thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And God says that still to every man. If you're perfectly righteous, you have no need of my son, you'll get to heaven on your own. But it's a big if, isn't it, friends? It's a big if. God will accept perfect righteousness if anybody can produce it, but you know full well nobody will. But that was the terms. Now then, Cain, if you have to acknowledge as you must that you cannot do well, that you need a saviour, well, why? Why take this attitude, you see? And then it's very interesting to know that the Septuagint version, Greek version, uses the word rightly divide. If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well and hast not rightly divided, you say, how does that come into it? How? Cain? You're showing what a tremendously important thing right division is. You haven't distinguished between your offering, poor little offering as it is, and the one that typifies the all-covering offering. You see? And God put it to him. He wasn't condemning him for the moment. He was putting it to him. And it says, A sin lieth at the door. Now this has been taken, of course, by novelists and others, and the ordinary expression, to lay it at somebody's door. But that, what could it mean in those days? Sin lieth at the door. Whose door? What do you say? Cain's door. Well, what did he mean by sin lying at Cain's door? The word to lie is found in such a context as this. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. The word does not mean a panther just in the act of springing on you, as the general conception is. And the word sin and the word sin offering are the same word in the Old Testament over and over and over again. I could give you chapter and verse where it says, if you lift out the words from the original, that a, a sin had hoofs and horns and skin and blood. Sin. No, sin offering. And if you look a bit further down, you'll see that this is borne out by verse 13. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Well, you can understand that, can't you? But look at the margin. You can read it another way. Mine iniquity is greater than may be forgiven. Well, what are you going to do with a language like that? But don't you see the language is teaching doctrine all the time? The same word for sin is the word for its punishment. The same word for uh, uh, the where it says bearing is greater than I can bear. That same word is the word to forgive. Because born sin is forgiven sin. So the Lord said to Cain, a sin offering is lying at the door. You were at the door of the tabernacle. For he caused a cherubim to tabernacle at the door, a gate to the Garden of Eden. There it was. 
Why don't you break your pride, Cain, and go the way of your brother Abel? And if you do, you'll be accepted, and you shall have the excellency. You shall rule over him. You'll be the firstborn. It's all right. But he didn't. And it is the tragedy. The man who would not approach God by the shedding of blood shed his brother's blood. Now here we have then the two seeds. In Genesis 3.15 God had said to the woman, his mother, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, that's the serpent, and between thy seed and her seed. And here it starts. The two sons were two seeds. Well, there we have a solemn thought then. Right at the beginning, the conflict started. The conflict between the two seeds. When our Saviour was here upon the earth and speaking about the problem as why the kingdom of heaven had not been set up, why it was delayed, he said an enemy has done this. And what the enemy did was to sow the very field of God with his own seed. And they both had to grow together until the harvest, because it wasn't everyone who could be trusted to distinguish between the one or the other at first. Here we are. Two seeds in the earth. Eventually, one to be burned and the other to be put into a bar. But that's at the end, not now. Then, of course, you see, you get a problem. Cain, he goes to the land of Nod. And you've only got to say that to somebody and that clever person says, well, that's got you. Because... Did he have a map and did he, did he look, look up the map and see its name? No. The word nod means a fugitive. He took the name with him. Here is a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth and when he got to that land it was named after him. Any amount of incidents can be remembered like that. All over the map you'll find the names of people that discovered the place or whatnot. It wasn't called America until it was discovered. But of course, Anything to reduce the Bible and put it as uh, lower than it should be. How did God meet this? How did he meet this? The next son is the one that stands for substitution. Verse 25. If Cain should be avenged sevenfold, truly Labek, twenty. A seventy and sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bare a son. And called his name Seth. Now the word Seth means to set. Just as the word Cain means to gain. It's just by accident I think that it happens to be so similar in the English language. But it's rather useful isn't it? She called his name Gain. For I have gained a man. She called his name Seth. Because God has said. And she didn't say God has given me another son. She said God has given me another seed. And that word appointed is the word set. God has appointed me another seed. There, here comes the critical word now. Instead of Abel. Whom Cain slew. 
So we've got now the principle repeated. In Genesis 3, the principle was there, coats of skin. In the word that's spoken to Cain and Abel, Abel accepted because he had something instead of himself. A trust in someone else. And Seth carries on the line of the true seed instead of Abel whom Cain slew. Well now we must move on a little bit. And we come to the next son that stands out prominently in the story and that is the story of Isaac. And I think we must look at chapter 15. Chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. That follows the uh, fight that Abraham had with the various kings that had raided and taken Lot captive. When it was all over, and he was thinking about it afterwards, I suppose, like the rest of us, he began to wonder whether he was going to be caught out by these kings at last. And then when he declined to take a thread from a shoe latchet, he may have said, I wonder if I was a bit of a fool not to take part of my reward. So the Lord comes and says, it's all right, Abraham, I know. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And then Abraham puts a question which was a legitimate one. He had been told that in thee and in thy seed shall all families of the earth be blessed. And he was getting an old man, and so his wife was getting an old woman. And he wondered what God could mean. He said, am I to understand that Eliezer of Damascus, my trusted servant, he's the one? No, said God, you're not to think that. You're not to think that. So he told him to have a look at the sky. He says, look now toward heaven, verse 5, and tell the stars if they'll be able to number them. He said unto him, so shall thy seed be. And then the statement is made. And he believed in the Lord, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So here we have then Isaac. And Isaac carries with him the emphasis upon resurrection. Will you turn to the comment made by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4 and in chapter 9 of Romans. First of all in chapter 4 where he speaks about this very passage. It says in verse 17, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations, before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead. It's an extra title emphasized there. It doesn't say the Lord God, or the God of Israel, or the God of thy fathers or anything, but it's the God that quickeneth the dead. So what we didn't know 
in reading Genesis, we know in reading Romans, that Abraham could believe. And it goes on to explain that it was a, a, a facer for him. Who against hope? That would be all legitimate human hope. Believed in hope. That it might become, that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead. The revised version, having a different manuscript and a, perhaps a more reliable one, leaves out the word not. And being not weak in faith, he did consider his own body now dead. So take which way you like, friends. He looked himself up and down, and he could find no evidence in himself that it could ever be, whichever way you look at it. But he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able to perform. So Isaac emphasises the resurrection. And there's also another word, another one, I haven't put them all down on this little chart, but there was another son, and his name was Ishmael. So now we've got Cain over against Abel, and then we've got Ishmael, the flesh, over against Isaac, the spirit. So will you turn to Romans the ninth chapter for another comment on this question of Isaac and his place. Romans 9, verse 6. Not as though the word of God had, been, had taken no effect, none effect. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. That's a word for most of us when we read about all, and say that all means all, that's good enough for me. Well, the Apostle Paul says all Israel should be saved, but he corrects any mistake you may make and say, they're not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. Ishmael was the seed of Abraham. He's not here though. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And in case you haven't quite got it, he says it again. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for a seed. The seed is still in the mind of God. With all the antagonism or the substitution of Ishmael? No, Isaac the one. Ishmael cast out. Not possible to inherit with Isaac. In Isaac shall thy seed be called. So there are three sons then that are worth pondering in their story. But as we haven't got unlimited time, we'll go on. And there's another one in the book of Genesis. And this is Joseph. You know his um, uh, title, the preserver, the peculiar words that we get when he was in Egypt, Zaft Nath Padia, after he had been set free from prison and uh, had saved Egypt from famine. And in the days when the authorised version was translated, the Egyptian hieroglyphics were unknown. They didn't know what they meant. They only knew they stood for something. So they translated the word as best they could and they've given it to you in the margin. But now the hieroglyphics can be read the same as Greek or Hebrew 
I did have, but I had to get rid of a lot of books, I did have a complete grammar of the Egyptian hieroglyphics. <coughs> Not that I ever got very far with it, but I could see that it was all there. And Zaphnathpedia is the bread of life. That's an anticipation of our Saviour, isn't it? Joseph. He was literally the bread of life to that people. And to his own people. And what a picture Joseph is of Christ, isn't he? Reuben the firstborn had forfeited that position. And right down the list comes Joseph. Right near the end. And he's given the coat of many colours. And he was given the promises. He was the firstborn son. So far as dignity was concerned. And the firstborn always had a double portion. So, if you'll try to discover which is the tribe of Joseph, you'll have a job. Because you'll find he's got two instead of one. Ephraim and Manasseh. Double. Joseph. Hated of his brethren. Sold into Egypt. By who? Judah. Judas, if it was Greek. For 20 pieces of silver in the days of Joseph. For 30 pieces of silver in the days of Christ. Who's going to quibble over that? Lost to his brethren. And while his brethren were suffering famine, Joseph was blessing the Gentiles. And then they came back to him. And he said, it's all right. You didn't know what you were doing, but God sent me in front of you to preserve seed, preserve life. (coughs) And so we had Joseph as a type of Christ. But I'm going to ask you to consider that if you stop with Joseph, you stop too soon. When you look back at um, Genesis, oh look for, I'm sorry, I was thinking back, uh, Genesis 30, 24. This records the birth of Joseph. It says in verse 22, And God remembered Rachel, and God hearkened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bare a son, and said, God hath taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, and said, The Lord shall add to me another son. I don't know whether you've entered into the family relationships of Jacob, but he had a proper time of it. On one occasion he said, Am I God? He said to them. So he he took one of the handmaids because Leah had so many children and it's a pathetic story to read. She said, "Um, Reuben, behold a son. Leah, the one that was not the one he wanted. She gave him a son. She called him Reuben. And then at last she said, Levi, oh, now I shall be joined unto my husband. No. He still loved Rachel and he had to take Leah, of course, couldn't help himself. So she had one more son and called his name Judah. She said, I'll praise the Lord and left off. That was poor Leah. But every name significant, you see, of the tragic history of Jacob. And now at last, Rachel, 
the one that was the one he, he intended to marry if he could without all the other attached to it. And she at last, so you can understand when she said, and God should add another one to me. You see? That's all she meant, I suppose. But now if you turn to Genesis 35, you'll see that this had to be overruled a little bit. Genesis 35, verse 17 and 18. And it came to pass when she was in hard labour that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. And it came to pass as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, son of my sorrow. Now, Jacob loved Rachel, and he would be a hard man with a dying wife like that, if he quibbled over what name you were going to call it. But Jacob had to. He said, no, no. He mustn't be called Benoni. He must be called Benjamin, the son of my right hand. <coughs> Friends, that's a type. You can have all the history of Christ in the story of Joseph, and you can stop too soon. For unless he who died and rose again and ascended and is seated at the right hand as a part of your gospel, you haven't got a complete Christ and you haven't got a complete message. Now, who was it then that put all these things and scattered them through the book of Genesis? It was God who knew the end from the beginning. Well, now I have two more and the light has gone up telling me Time is running out. So I'll ask you to consider two together. David, whose history would fill an evening more and then enough. The shepherd king. And he was concerned. He said, here, God's living in a tabernacle and I'm living in a temple or I'm living in a palace. And God said, it's all right, David. It was right to be in your heart, but you've been a man of blood. Your son, Solomon, he'll do it. So David is complimented by Solomon. And Solomon is a picture of the son that he had in view in Psalm 72. David's first thought may have been about his son Solomon when he wrote Psalm 72. But we know as well as anything that when it said, in this son, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are consummated or ended, it takes you on to great David's greater son, Solomon. So if you'll turn, just by way of an added word, to the first book of Kings, and um, the fourth chapter, we shall see how he excelled, so far as David's was concerned, and was an anticipation of the millennial reign of Christ, which, of course, could only be fulfilled, could only fulfill Psalm 2 and Psalm 72 in their fullness. 1 Kings, chapter 4, verse 20. And Judah and Israel were many, 
as the sand which is by the sea. That was one of the promises made. Yeah, it's fulfilled. Then again, in verse 21, And Solomon reigned over all kingdoms, from the river unto the land of the Philistines, and unto the border of Egypt. In Solomon's day, the land that God promised to Abraham was not a little strip down by the seaside. It went very much further and very much deeper. Now, of course, you've got a barbed wire running through the streets of Jerusalem and so on. But that's only for a time. And then they brought presents. These other kings brought presents. This is what it says. And again in verse um, 25. Oh, verse 24. For he had dominion. He had dominion over all the region on this side of the river. He shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And then finally, verse 25. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan even to Belsheba, all the days of Solomon. He was the prince of peace in type. He was a failure like the rest. David failed. Solomon failed. All of them failed. A type must necessarily only set forth in shadow and not the very image of a thing. But aren't we glad that this Son of God has been anticipated in this wonderful way? So you can go on with a book. Types of Christ will meet you at every turn. And you needn't be fantastic about it. You need not invent them. They're there. And so I ask you once again to give Christ the place that the Bible gives to him. And our Lord, in the beginning, hast laid the foundations of the earth. Who did he say that to? Unto the Son, he said. And our Lord, in the beginning, hast laid the foundations of the earth. They shall perish, but thou remainest. That's the Son. Moses was a servant in the house, but the son over his own house. And he who created all things is God, it says in the context. So we have the son of God, who was the son of man, the prince of peace, the one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Look at his titles. We can't explore them. I think it's wiser to bend the knee and thank God for them.